So <clears throat> yesterday I found myself uh, musing about uh, silence, stillness. How is the sound level, actually? Is it echoing or is it, does it seem okay? Okay, it's just echoing to me. <laughs> I guess I have to live with it. Uh, <clears throat> it's bad enough to hear myself once, to hear it twice. <laughs> so I'm going to talk for an hour about silence and stillness. <laughs> anyway, just I guess just because it's so, I mean, quiet here, but it was just such a lovely day yesterday, and I was, when I would walk out of here in the morning and just be looking outside, and I got that. Uh, reflection back of the silence. I really mean not external silence, and I don't mean the silence of deep samadhi or of uh, no thought exactly, but that that silence of the non-reactive heart and mind, that uh, stillness, that peace when the the mind and heart is not concocting something, is not picking up something, any perception, and making something of it. And um, yeah, I just kept musing about that quality of silence. And uh, then yesterday I was reading in this book, which is a great book if you can look when you leave, because it isn't here, The Island, which is a new anthology by Ajans Pasano and Ajahn Amaro, where they put together a lot of um, basically all different sutta references and a lot of other references pertaining to Nibbana in any way. And it's very well put together, a great compilation. And I was um, reading a particular chapter about a word that I love, atamayata, which basically means non-fabricating, non-concocting, non-identifying. It's really, in some ways, it could be when the, the state or non-state, when the heart, the mind, is independent, not affected by greed, hatred, or delusion, so that pure state of heart and mind, it's not involved in concocting any sense of self or any sense of anything in relationship to any perception. So, of course, obviously, on the highest, most profound level, that's nibbana freedom. But it's also kind of, this is kind of following on a theme I was talking about last week. We can explore both the silence, what that means in our own moment-to-moment experience, not to pick up anything, not to make anything of anything, but not to try and stop experience. And even more, we get the chance to explore how the concocting and fabrication happens, to observe the process. And sometimes it's even quite possible to observe the process of fabricating without actually fabricating anything around it, if that makes sense. Like a couple of people, a couple of different people have given me examples in the last two days of seeing a whole a perception and a whole amount of anger coming, a whole pattern that they're used to, that they've seen a million times, and the whole thing's going. And the heart mind's just watching it without being involved. You get a sense of your, your, your personality's running its show, but the mind's just, oh yeah, it's like this. And it just bubbles up and disappears. It's quite possible to do that. So we can explore. This is, I love this, 
something from, oh, I have it in here, something from the island that they um, put together. This is from one of, um, one of their Thai teachers, Lung Pu Dun, and it's his kind of re-describing re re of the Four Noble Truths. So just take it in, in, in terms of this mind constructing and making suffering. So he says, Lung Pu Dun, he was a disciple of Ajahn Mun. He says, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. So that's the second truth and the first truth. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. I don't know, I just, just love that. That very simple, but I could really feel it, that way of putting the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. And the effect that we experience when the mind and heart goes out and constructs a whole nishigas in relationship to its moods, that's suffering. Probably we wouldn't argue too much with that second one, that that's suffering. But just to uh, explore, explore that sense that it's, it really feels like the mind re reacts to something, goes out, creates the whole story, creates the world, creates suffering. So how does that happen? That is the exact definition of this um, mental proliferation or papancha. So this is from the suttas. How does that happen? Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of these three, eye, forms, and eye consciousness, is sense contact. With sense contact as condition, there is feeling, vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling into something. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With such conceptual proliferation, papancha, as the source, the heart is beset by mental perceptions and notions characterized by the prolific tendency with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. So too with ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So we know that, but that's clear. Huh? Simply contact, seeing arises. With seeing, there comes feeling. It's felt with the mind as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And feeling and perception come together. What one feels, one perceives. We perceive it as good, as bad, as this or that, and the whole show, just like that. Just like that. Over and over and over and over and over. What one feels, that one perceives. It happens so fast. I mean, we know this. None of this is news to anybody. But I'm just wanting to go over it as just 
exploring this, this really amazing process by which the mind just goes out in response to, in reaction to, feeling and perception. When there's, and we all know the reverse, when there's wisdom, when there's mindfulness, just the simple being present with what is, without reactivity, without liking or disliking, when there's wisdom to just see it, the tendency to go out is sometimes consciously restrained, or if the wisdom and mindfulness is even stronger, it just, the tendency to go out just doesn't arise at all. That's the heart and mind at peace, right? That's that sense of what you could call silence or stillness or whatever. And when it's like that, it's so, what's the problem? Because the, the tendency to go out and make up a whole story just, just doesn't arise. And sometimes people say they're even almost looking, you know, well, come on, you know, where's the selfing in there? Come on, it must be, the wanting must be here. And they can make a whole story of that, but without going that far, you kind of, you look and it really isn't arising. Pure mind, pure heart in that moment. The stillness of non-fabrication. Beautiful. So, of course, there's many ways to go into exploring this fabrication. I'm just going onto the train that's the way my mind was working in the last couple of days, which is on this level of Vedana and Sanya, of feeling, tone, and perception that arise together at the point of contact, that as the Buddha says, feed. Well, actually, that wasn't the Buddha who was saying that. That was uh, Mahakasapa. But anyway, the Buddha said, I would have said the same thing, so it counts. <laughs> now, every now and then, the Buddha would give a little short talk. The monks would say, thank you. He'd go away, and then they'd go, what was he talking about? That was too complicated. Who can we go and ask? And they would go and ask one or another of the senior monks, and occasionally senior nun. And then the whole sutta is this other monk or nun talking. And then at the end, of course, they all go back to the Buddha and said, we asked him this, and he said this, and what do you think? And the Buddha says, yes, just as they said, so I would have said, so you should remember it. So then, then it gets into the suttas, if it was one of those. We don't know about times when the Buddha said, he was really off. That didn't make it in. Anyway. So to explore the sense of Vedana and Sanya and how quickly and how deeply the habit of perception is linked to Vedana. And this, again, we all really know, but I keep getting amazed at how deep and subtle this habitual Sanya perception can be that when they contact, the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the feeling, the thought, the mood, is pleasant. The perception of it, first we perceive it as pleasant, but the perception is on some level right or good or how it should be. You know? And when it's unpleasant, so close is the sanya, the perception, that it's bad or wrong or need to get away from this. I mean, we know this, but it's just so in there that so often we don't even recognize that. We may recognize the Vedana, we may not. We often don't recognize that perception, and that is exactly 
where the proliferation begins to take off. This is from well, Santikaro translating Buddhadasa, who used to talk a lot about rising, being above positive and negative. So I don't want to talk about being above, but this is just where this is coming from. He says, human beings instinctively feel and perceive, so Vedna and perception, experience as being either positive or negative. It's just our deep habit. And so this leads to evaluating and judging those experiences, which turns into liking and disliking those experiences, which in turn fosters craving, attachment, and selfishness, the whole mass of dukkha and misery. The mind that has, in this Buddhadasa's term, gone beyond positive and negative cannot be pulled into this conditioned arising of dukkha. So if we think of it in just a moment, I don't like so much going beyond because that feeds into our striving mind. There's somewhere else to go. And right away we want to go beyond because already positive and negative is bad. You see how fast we go there. I need to go beyond it because that's wrong. We're right there. In the Vedna Sanya, bad, wrong should change. So when we're just not caught one way or the other in needing to evaluate or the other, that's when there's this non-fabrication, this stillness. It's, as um, Buddha Dasa says, though, it's such a deeply conditioned habit. And I mean, talking to people and watching my own experience to see how often the mind, as, as uh, Ajahn Dun says, goes out, you know, and responds to moods and creates suffering. How often the trigger for that is the, the Vedna and the perception of something that's unpleasant, disliked, or that is held with the idea this should not be happening. Usually it's unpleasant. If it's not unpleasant, it doesn't conform with an idea we're holding of how things should be. And I'm talking about our practice right now, but that's the same as in our life. But in practice here, how much of the suffering that seems mental and trying to fix and trying to do and reorganize and all the, self, all the self-judgment comes from some sense of this should be different. Not quite okay. Rarely is it pleasant when the mind goes there, but it could be. It's also possible. But how deeply that's ingrained that I can somehow hold myself separate from this unwanted experience or that this unwanted experience is proof that something's wrong, that I'm bad. Something needs to be different for there to be peace, for there to be silence, for there to be stillness. Somehow this deep sense that peace and freedom, and and keep looking in your mind because it gets so, so subtle, somehow comes back to this entrancement with the positive, to use Buddha language, this subtle sense that, that liberation is a movement towards more and more pleasant, 
away from the unpleasant. And when something's going well and it's pleasant and clear and whatever, and it changes and it contracts and it gets cloudy and all kinds of junk is going on and you can't notice what's happening, well, that's a problem. Now we've hit a problem. Something's wrong because it's supposed to be this other way. That's what practice is about. That's what life is about. As I don't remember if the Buddha or Sariputta was saying this, but say, whatever is felt is included within dukkha, included within the first noble truth. Not just unpleasant vedana is included within dukkha, and pleasant vedana is down there in the third noble truth cessation. I don't think so. Whatever is felt is included within dukkha in terms of unreliable, in terms of not self, in terms of not bringing us any kind of reliable satisfaction. But the habit is so strong. It's from the Buddha, that sutta of the two darts, one of the things I love about it, where he describes how these habits come to underlie our heart and mind. So you know the two darts if someone has a painful feeling and the unenlightened worldling and there was a, there was a, in one of the uh, readings in here in the island, there was a translation of this word putajana, which is often translated as unenlightened worldling or ordinary person. I just, this translation was a fixter. I loved it. <laughs> a fixter. <laughs> so when a fixter is touched, you know, with an unpleasant sensation, and then they beat the breast and lament and grieve and wail, and it's like shooting yourself with a second arrow. So that's the setup. You experience two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental unpleasant feeling. Okay. So the fixter, having been touched by that painful feeling, resists and resents that painful feeling. Then in one who so resists a painful feeling, the underlying tendency of resistance comes to be a habit in the mind. So it becomes a habit to resist unpleasant feeling. And under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to search for, to enjoy sensual happiness. And why does he do so? Because an untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. Then, in one who enjoys hap sensual happiness, the underlying tendency of lust, of craving for pleasant feelings, comes to underlie his mind, her mind. He does not know, according to how it is, the arising and ending of these feelings. Doesn't know the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings, doesn't see them clearly. And so in one who lacks that knowledge, the underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings comes to underlie the mind. So when he experiences either pleasant, painful, or neutral, he feels it as one who is fettered by that feeling, who is chained by that feeling, simply through not seeing it as it is. But I actually find that personally really poignant, this sense of how deep the habit is when touched by something that's unpleasant, painful, 
I mean, we get into resistance, and some with the aversive temperament, you could say, tend to notice the resistance more, tend to kind of muck around in that mental state for a while. But from that, and you could say the more uh, desiring temperament or the habit of mind in some is stronger that it just zooms into looking for finding something to lust after, something that's more pleasant. And then that becomes the habit that underlies the mind. And as the Buddha says, what the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that is how it will naturally incline. And so just this very simple experience that's happening to us with every moment of sense contact, that's pretty much every moment we're awake, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, contact. There's feeling and there's perception. And so often when there's not mindfulness, and sometimes even when we are watching, this speed of concocting of moods of our whole story of self and other and past and future comes to be just like that, just based on Vedna and Sanya. As, as you know, the three in the commentaries, this is the three, they say, sources of papancha, of this speed of proliferating thoughts tend to be craving, attachment to views, and mana or conceit, the subtle sense of self, the subtle comparing. But you can see just starting with craving papancha, how we think of papancha just as lots of thoughts coming really quickly, but how really it is that perception and those thoughts are creating our world in that moment. Many worlds over and over with every new construction, but this is really the the confusion, the delusion that keeps us kind of off balance with the world, with ourselves, with what's happening, because we're basically making it all up. Dingo Kensi, Rinpoche. When our sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. So when there's the sound, that sound is the object, your ear works, there's hearing of it. Perception would be bell or whatever perception you had. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by all your accumulated habits and past experiences, The whole process is entirely subjective. And we know this really if we look at it. When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure. And we know this, don't we? Isn't it like that? I can't remember someone was telling me how they just were having, you know, a bad morning and something, this was wrong and that was wrong. And then you notice the mind was clouded with grumpiness and then every single thought was something else that was wrong. And if we're not really watching that, it really is the whole world becomes a hell realm. And you walk in the dining room the next morning. It's how beautiful. 
the sun, the people, they're so lovely. You know, everything is primordially pure. That must have been a dream yesterday. Ajahn Chah, he's so great. He holds up a vase and he goes, okay, cup. Look at this cup. You might think it's nice or ugly or indifferent. It's just a cup. It's you who are making yourselves insane. And a cup doesn't care. And it's like that with anything. So right at the point of contact, mindfulness wisdom at the point of contact, at the point of perception in Vedana, that's the fount of freedom, the fount of all wisdom. But it's so easy to miss that point of contact and get completely into this concoction so quick, so fast. And then the mind flips. You know, we wonder why we're confused. And in terms of this craving papancha, Tibetans have a great saying that, that craving puts feathers on an object. So craving colors our perception. The thing crave looks so much more attractive. And as I said, it's really the way the mind moves away from the unpleasant, from craving. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone in an interview, and the person was saying, you know, I'm seeing craving all the time, but I really want to see aversion. I know I have this aversion, and I really, I can't see it. I want to see aversion. I mean, I bit my tongue because I could have, you know, said a lot of things. But anyway, as we kept exploring, we come to where, say, well, how long do you walk somehow came up. So, well, I walk, you know, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I said, oh, really? And then what happens? Well, then I think of something really much more interesting to do, and I go and do it. So well, what happened if you... You know, what happened just that moment before? Well, I think, you know, the walking's not so great. So I go, and as we talked, we could see in a lot of different areas, as soon as just the slightest unpleasantness came, the mind immediately created something so much more desirable, which could have been anything, but it was desirable so that the unpleasant wasn't even noticed. Never mind the aversion, just zoom into desire. And whatever whole worlds that particular desire created, whatever concoction or fabrication. It's fascinating. And as we talked, you could go, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then, of course, I never got to talk to him again. I have no idea if he could keep exploring that or what. But just seeing, that's exactly the papancha of craving, exactly what the Buddha was saying is the way the mind avoids the unpleasant and never knows that's what's happening. So as long as we're seduced by this promise of pleasure, as long as we're seduced by this subtle or not so subtle perception that the difficult, the painful, the grief-stricken, the sad is wrong, bad, a mistake, something to get rid of. As long as we're seduced by the perception of the beautiful being the right way and the other the wrong way, so long we're going to keep on being entranced by samsara. Choki Nima, who is the brother of um, Sogni Rinpoche, and I heard him, he was giving a little teaching one day, which of course I can't find now. He was, he was giving a teaching, and he talked about, um, well, 
I can't find it, but I know it. He talked about renunciation as really being what he called weariness with samsara. And by weariness, he didn't mean aversion. Or for me, I hear weariness, and my mind goes to aversion, to not liking. But he means a weariness with samsara, where he says, just keep watching the fickleness of Vedana, the fickleness, the untrustworthiness of, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. How quickly it changes, and how quickly our mind is seduced by just a moment of pleasantness into a whole mood, into a whole story of us and other and life and past and future and what's going to happen and how good I'll feel and how will I do it and what will they say and when I get home, right? Just by one moment of pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling or neutral feeling. And Somehow, when we're not weary in a moment yet with that, there's that promise of, yeah, yeah, this, this concoction, this fabrication is really how it is. This is really going to bring me to peace. And then we change. <laughs> Andrea Levine, I read this somewhere, Stephen Levine's wife, she said, how the mind is so untrustworthy. She's saying, you're eating chocolate cake, and the mind goes, Oh, have another piece. It won't hurt you. It's really tasty. Have another piece of chocolate cake. Be kind to yourself. Then you eat the second piece of cake, and the mind goes, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. (laughs) And we keep on believing it. We keep not noticing this one concoction after the other. Ajahn Chah has... um, a lovely way of describing how the mind concocts reality. He says, we are determining things into existence in every moment, this concoction, this fabrication. So I'll read you some things he says about it. The tendency to conceive, the Buddha talks about the tides of conceiving sweeping over a person and being a source of endless suffering. The tendency to conceive, to make things up in terms of self, is the source of happiness, suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. This is the worldly mind spinning around and changing at the directives of worldly conditions. So this is what he means. His appearances are determined into existence because they don't intrinsically exist. For example, simple example, Suppose somebody wanted to make a marker. They would take a piece of wood or a rock, place it on the ground, and then call it a marker. He said, actually, it's not a marker. There isn't any marker. It's just something that we've determined into existence, right? The the use of conventional concepts. Very helpful when we know, in the same way we determine cities, people, cattle, everything. We determine these things into existence because intrinsically it isn't like that. They aren't these separate things. It's like having an empty dish. You can put anything you like into it because it's empty. This is the nature of determined reality. Men and women are determined concepts, as are all the things around us. 
If we know the truth of determinations clearly, we can be at peace. It's not a problem. We know how to use them. We need to understand them. Good, evil, high, low, black, white, all determinations. The trouble is mostly we're lost in determinations. That's the truth. But when we see that everything arises and then ceases, people are born, then they die, bad moods arise, and then they cease. Good moods arise, and then they cease. He says, have you ever seen anybody cry for three or four whole years without stopping? <laughs> so that the most you might cry a whole night, then the tears dry up. <laughs> and in their passing is peace. This is really peace, to be calmed of proliferations, calmed of this concocting, calmed of the burden of self. Because as the Buddha says, even what we call, even what the world calls self is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter upon what it constructs, its ideas of identity, the fact is ever other than that. It's basically the sense of self is a moment-by-moment fabrication based on contact, vedna, and sanya in any particular moment. And because the actuality is always other than that, as Sumedha says, you can't construct a peaceful sense of self because there's no solid sense of self anyway, and whatever we construct is based on reactivity to moods, to sanya, to vedna. And we wonder why it doesn't really work. So how do we, I mean, we know this, but in terms of this place of vedana and sanya, how can we begin and continue not constructing? How can we just be so present that construction doesn't need to happen? And in terms of, again, what I, how I've just been noticing in the last couple weeks is how often it starts from that moment of perception of unpleasant or bad or wrong and that immediate construction to change to get away or to go into and blame oneself, but that construction, that inability or unwillingness or not even noticing to just be completely at ease, at rest, even in the difficult, even in the difficult. As Joko Beck says, can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion and unpleasantness? And it's true, sometimes we can find a willingness and not the ability. I just want to acknowledge, I think I said that last time, we can have some really strong uh, 
concoction come up, a terror, a mood, or an aversion, or a sense of self-judgment, or an incredible lust, you know, and you sort of know what's there. You can sort of say, this is incredible lust, but that's as far as you can go with mindfulness. And the energy of the kalesa, the energy of that mood, is so much stronger than the energy of mindfulness. This happens once in a while. It might happen to you. So when you notice that, it's also wisdom to see at this moment, and this is what we call feeding and starving. You're trying to be mindful of the lust, and it's getting worse and worse, and you're about to you know, act on it. You're like, OK, too strong. At this point, you really need to change the channel. You need to back off. That's not an unwillingness. That doesn't mean you're a hopeless failure in mindfulness and practice. It means with wisdom you see, the energy of mindfulness, the strength of it, just doesn't meet the strength of the kalesa at that point. It's like we've got to choose when to be present and what skillful means when it's time to change the channel. But often, it's, it's not that there's not an ability, there's not a willingness, or even, as I was saying in the beginning, the perception that the, this is wrong is so deep and unquestioned and maybe not even noticed that we're engaging in a huge fabrication to change, to fix, to get away from, and we don't even know it. We don't even know that's what's going on. Our mind, as quite a few people were saying in the last couple of days, the word rationalization kept coming up over and over. But I can rationalize this. Or there's a really good rationalization. Or like, yeah, our mind can come up with thoughts and constructions and explanations for anything. I mean, my God, just listen to politicians, you know, can explain anything. And when you're listening, you go, that's a bunch of crap, right? Now, if only we could listen to ourselves in that same way. As soon as I hear my mind going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. Okay, thank you very much. What's going on? What's going on? Come back here. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in the unpleasantness, to just rest in the unpleasantness? A French writer, Colette, wrote once, Look for a long time at what pleases you, and for a longer time at what pains you. Just like that, as an expression of mindfulness. Mindfulness, a willingness to be aware, isn't hierarchical, and it isn't choosing which things are more worthy of our awareness than another. Whether worthy means pleasant, whether worthy means I think I'll learn more if I look at this than if I look at that. Worthy means this is what's supposed to be happening. That's not what's supposed to be happening. If I look at this thing that I like longer, it'll get better. If I pretend this isn't happening, it'll go away. I don't know why we keep thinking that'll work. Denial. Denial's an amazing force. That's a whole other talk. But Can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the unpleasant and the difficult And this is a place, I think, in terms of the, the deeply inlaid habit of self-judging that so many people have. Can, comes from you know, lots of particular personal circumstances. Each of us who has that can maybe trace in our particular biographical history reasons why self-judgment or self-hatred or fear of annihilation or being unloved or abandonment. You know, We each have our personal story with it. But what I keep exploring in myself is how on this very basic 
level, momentary level of experience, the sense of self-judging, worthlessness, whatever, first of all, it pretty much only comes along with something that's happening that's unpleasant or that I don't think should be happening, right? When I'm feeling really concentrated or filled with love or my body doesn't hurt or it's a sense of stillness, am I judging myself? Not, not so likely. When that goes away, oh, what did I do wrong? And then we start judging, you know, bad, well, I, it, because I was, you know, so filled with ego about that good thing and that's why it went away and nah, 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 nah. I mean, I could give you 10 million examples. You can all make up your own examples. But I've seen how much the sense of self-judging is, again, it's a sense of, of not really deeply understanding the first noble truth. The sense that, you know, bad stuff's not supposed to happen. And when it does happen, to me, I, I'm a failure. Getting sick, getting old, getting angry, not being able to concentrate, not being able to do open vipassana, not being able to do whatever your mind made up is the way that things are supposed to be happening, not seeing that our mind made it up, trying to make our experience fit it, it doesn't. It's another sign of failure. Somehow not really clearly seeing, as uh, Chokni Nima said, the fickleness of Vedna, of perception, of samsara, the constant changing nature, as if anything could stay the same. As if, if we get it right, the sense of self will never arise again. And when you think you've really seen through it and it arises again, that's just further proof that you're hopelessly, hopelessly deluded and addled. You might as well just give it up. We land in there, not really understanding. All, all my life, well, since I was old enough to read and stuff, I always found myself uh, the most deeply inspired by reading or hearing about or reading the accounts of people who have somehow um, been able, either been present in periods of great suffering and somehow, you know, big cataclysmic events in the world or in their life, and somehow able to be present with that bear witness to that suffering, their own, others, or both, in a way that is, it's both bearing witness to what's happening, but in a way that's ennobling, in a way that also um, meets it with compassion and understanding, without dehumanizing the people that are suffering, the people who may or seem to be creating the suffering, or oneself from being in it. To me, it's almost like, I remember when I was, I don't know, maybe in high school, I. I um, just compulsively read all of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's stuff, all of it, and the stuff of the Gulag Archipelago and all of his, all of his novels. And looking back, I, I actually still have it lying next to my bed. I tried to read it and go, God, you know, this horrible stuff. How come I was always wanting to read that? Because it's, it's long. It's a lot of stuff of what went on in, uh, in Stalin's Russia in quite some detail. But when I think back, it's the fact that, I mean, he had anger. I'm not saying he was like a bodhisattva or something. But there's a way he bore witness in his own experience and in others' experience that kept finding the humanity and the uh, goodness and the decency in people 
that for him going through the horror of being in the labor camps actually woke him up more to the depth of life, to the beauty and the suffering, to what life's all about, kind of instead of just living on the surface, you know, it opened him to depth of connection with life, with suffering, with compassion, with human beings. There's a way that suffering, I think, yeah, I always forget if Buddha Dasa or Rajan Chah said this, there's a suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering, depending on how we meet it, how we relate to it. And so somehow it's always touched me so deeply. Solzhenitsyn is just an example, or, or Martin Luther King, when you read some of the stuff he said about uh, being facing suffering and violence and horror and racism and murder and saying, I refuse to become bitter. I refuse. And he refused to turn his back and refused to make anyone else the other. But being able to be present and awake with wisdom, with compassion, with a wholeness of presence in the midst of suffering that you know you just don't even want to watch it on TV, you know, and he's living through it. So many people like that in big places, you know, in big events in the world. But for each of us, in any moment, that's the possibility for us that this willingness just to be fully present for whatever it is, is the opening into the stillness of non-fabrication, the opening into connection with all beings through compassion. I know for myself I've seen this oh, a million times, on retreat, off retreat, it doesn't matter. But I have to keep rediscovering it. You know, I can't just tell myself that doesn't work. I have to really rediscover it from my gut, so to speak. But when I'm going through time, when I start to feel alienated, disconnected, alone, or, you know, just that something's wrong, and the more I'm trying to figure it out, the more disconnected, the more alienated I feel. And whether it projects out and I start perceiving people as being weird or not acting right or whatever, or whether it turns around and goes in, you know, I'm a hopeless failure and everything. Whatever way it goes, of course, that just leads to more alienation, right? All, I'll say always, this isn't always. I always find that somehow at the root of that is a trying to avoid, move away from, some difficult, painful, unpleasant experience. It could be so-called internal, so-called external, it doesn't matter. It could be a huge, like, unpleasant experience of something going on with my family that I feel helpless to help with that really triggers a fear and an anger and I don't want to be with the whole thing so I unplug my phone so I don't get a phone call, you know, just pretend the whole thing isn't happening. Yeah, that really helps. But that, or it could just be something I don't even know what. I just sit down or stop walking or just, if I'm driving, just kind of tune in What's, with my eyes open, just kind of tune in. What's happening? Sometimes it just comes down to a tightness in the chest. It's not even some huge event necessarily, but just some unpleasant, icky feeling the mind and heart is concocting a whole fabrication. The whole world is turning into an alienated hell realm not to feel this. Just not to feel this. You feel and go, oh, if 
I feel this, I'm going to die. That's how it feels. But you feel it, and not only do you not die, it's like, oh, that's just what's happening. The whole concoction stops. Self and other, no problem. Just thisness. It's really quite amazing. Quite amazing. From that, just the willingness just to rest in the unpleasant, in the confusing, in the difficult, is the potential for this opening into a connection and tenderness with all life that's not based on separation, that's not based on concocting, that's not based on fabrication. Well, I was going to talk about the other two papanchas than craving, but I think I won't. I'll just mention them. The second source of papancha, the source that you know feeds the concocting, is a, our attachment to our views, which I've been alluding to, our views of what's right, of what's wrong, how someone should act, how something should be. You can, get, you can already get a sense of how far we can go with that. And the third is this mana, conceit, comparing. Well, we have a couple of minutes. I'll just give some examples of that because it's really, really interesting to look at this on retreat. Just because you have more time, because the mind's a little quieter. So mana, often translated as the conceit of self, is really, in one way, it's really, it's obvious, it's happening a lot, it isn't that subtle. When you start noticing it, you think, how could I not? But on another level, it's really very subtle. Because in terms of the 10 so-called fetters in the Theravada system of the kind of um, phases of awakening as various uh, torments, confusions are attenuated and released from the mind. So gradually there's less craving, less aversion, not the strong belief in personality. In fact, one of the first fetters that's supposed to be seen through is Sakaya Ditti, personality belief. That doesn't mean sense of self goes away. Mana, conceit, this subtle sense of self and other is one of the last ones to be seen through. And so one of the ways this subtle conceit of I am manifests is through a grosser or more subtle comparing of the mind. I'm sure you've noticed your mind comparing once in a while. Just better than, less than, equal to. And just start tuning into it. It's a trip. You know, you walk into the dining room. Sometimes when I'm on retreat over at the retreat center, I haven't done it for a long time, and when it's really crowded there, I think of the dining room as, you know, hell realm meditation. It's just so much going on, you know? And when the mind's really quiet and not concocting and not reacting, it's not a hell realm. The hell realm's not the dining room. Let's be clear. The hell realm is in the mind and heart that's reacting, that's fabricating, that's concocting. But how much of that, it's not all comparing. It's other stuff, too, as you all know. But just notice comparing. 
How do they eat compared to me? How much do they take? How do they walk? How do they sit? How do they chew? They're better than me. They're worse than me. They're the same as me. They're eating more. They're eating less. They come late. They go early. They're so greedy. I'm so greedy. Who's more greedy? You know, just endless. Who sits longer? Who sits shorter? Who walks longer? Who walks slower? Who's that walking by me? You know, that sense of isn't that a killer, how much you have to look when somebody's walking by you? Like it makes a difference? <laughs> Has it ever really brought peace to your heart and mind when you looked? <laughs> it brings the peace of the end of craving. Yes, it does bring that peace. But we could have that without satisfying the craving, too. You know, that's a big insight. But it generally then adds the unpeace of, oh, them, you know? that person and whatever particular judgment or comparison the mind makes. So if it's someone who's schlumping by making a lot of noise and you finally look and go, oh, it's that person I thought was better than me and look at them now, aha, <laughs> right? Or someone's going so slow and you think, you look, oh no, it's that person and I thought they were the one person who was worse than me and they're doing better now, you know? And every time a new person comes, you have to reorganize all the you know, order you've got everybody in. Comparing, comparing is an endless source of suffering. It's a wonderful source of increasing our sense of worthlessness and self-judgment. It's really good for that. It also is, in a twisted way, it really shows the interconnectedness of all of us. Because we're constantly, you know, you can't compare without me and you and them and other, and you can't compare all by yourself. There has to be something there. Everything anyone else does affects us in a twisted kind of way. But anyway, it's a great practice, a great group practice, a great dining room practice to simply notice. Notice when the mind has zoomed out. Just as Ajahn Dun said, it's zoomed out after a mood and created a whole world based on comparing. See if you're still there, if you can just notice the point of sense contact. Did the comparing, did it start with seeing? Can you come back and just be with seeing? See if you notice if it's pleasant or unpleasant. See if you notice the perception. Seeing, uh, oh, they're no good. Seeing, oh, wow, aren't they doing this? Seeing, oh, I'm no good. You know, just, just noticing. Seeing the contact. Vedana, how it feels, the perception. Not in order to just to explore and just to see if it's possible, and it is possible, to from time to time come back to this level of immediacy of experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Vedana, perception. Yeah, that's happening. Thoughts might come. That's also happening. We don't have to buy into the construction. Then there's stillness. That stillness of the mind not needing to reference other or self for anything. Not needing to reference time. Not needing to reference space. No movement to locate, to compare anything. Just the stillness of this right now. This is the Buddha. This is really, he's describing the end of Papancha, but he's just talking about himself. Thus, because the Tathagata does not conceive 
of a visible thing as apart from sight. He does not conceive of something unseen. He does not conceive of a thing to be seen. He does not conceive about a seer. You get that? Read the end. And he does, goes through all the different senses. He does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. The famous thing to buy here in the seeing, there's only the seen. There's no seer seeing something. There's not something else somewhere else to go and be seen. There's not someone seeing. There's no visible thing apart from sight. No audible thing apart from sound. And he goes through all of that. He does not conceive about one who cognizes. Thus, whatever's seen, heard, sensed, or clung to is known as truth by other folk, but amidst those who are entrenched in views. One who is thus, like Tathagata, holds none of these views as true or false. You don't need to take a stand on the view at all. And this is the end of papancha, the end of resorting to weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here these harmful, unwholesome states cease without remainder. The end of papancha, as the Buddha says, is the ending of conflict. It's Adi Ashanti, I like this quote. Self-referencing is the mind's tendency to locate itself. So when it is realized that there is no self apart from the perceiving, then the tendency to try to find oneself in any experience, insight, or concept ceases. I'm talking about a condition where the mind has no compulsive need to understand in terms of ideas, concepts, and beliefs. A condition where you are no longer referencing the mind, feelings, or emotions for security in any way. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Nisargadatta, Maharaj says, just sit quietly, free from the obsession with what next. And in the silence, something may be heard which is ordinarily too fine and subtle for perception.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.